0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler.
1: This past week saw Yosemite and Kings Canyon National Parks join nearby Sequoia National Park in closing due to poor air quality resulting from the wildfires in California. Across the country at Great Smoky Mountains National Park, officials say it could be weeks or months before they know whether a black bear found scavenging the remains of a backpacker killed the man or whether he died of other causes. And at Isle Royale National Park in Michigan, staff announced that a number of pups have been born to wolves, relocated to the park in a bid to recover the species there. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we welcome you to fall with a conversation with lodging experts David and Kay Scott on where best to relax and enjoy the fall foliage in the national park system. And Lynn Riddick catches up with Seth Benz, the bird ecology director at the Skudik Institute, to talk fall migrations at Acadia National Park.
0: Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park, to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org the North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org.
1: Here it is, mid-September. Fall is soon to be upon us and It's time to start thinking, and actually it's late, to be thinking about where in the national park system you'd like to go and and have a nice beautiful lodge setting. So maybe you could tuck this story aside for next year, but um, we've brought in David and Kay Scott, um, the uh, experts on national park lodging, to try and give us some some key pointers on where we might want to go vacation in the national parks during fall to make the most of the fall foliage colors in a beautiful lodge setting, David and Kate, welcome back to the Traveler. Nice Great, to be with thank you again. You. So I know um, this year we're going to be kind of challenged um, color-wise um, because different parts of the country have either had too much rain or or not enough rain. I know here in the the Rocky Mountain region it's been a very dry summer, and that's definitely affected the turning of the colors. Uh, the the leaves that are starting to turn aren't as vibrant. As they normally are. Um, have you any sense on how things look across the country before we start talking lodge specifics?
2: I think in the east, it, it should be pretty good. We we called um, or talked to someone on in the Blue Ridge Parkway a couple of days ago, and they thought that maybe the colors would turn a little earlier this year because the cool they're, get, they're getting some uh, cool temperatures now, but. Uh, I think in the east, things might be good. We're less certain in the west. And, of course, there's a lot of bad things going on in the west anyway with all the fires in California and all the smoke.
1: Earlier this month, um, there was an incredible cold front that came down. and uh, saw Montana. that on
3: the weather.
1: Yeah, in Montana, Wyoming, through Colorado, down into New Mexico. Um, overnight the temperature went from, you know, midday high in the 80s down into the the 20s. And, of course, parts of Wyoming and Colorado got, you know, six inches to a foot of snow. So I'm sure that's probably impacted the the leaf colors. But
2: um, I'm sure it did. I I think in in Yellowstone it was supposed to get to 14, one or two nights uh, in that cold spell. So, yeah, that would affect it it a great deal. Uh, But I think in the east, um, especially in the Blue Ridge Parkway, where elevations uh, vary a great deal, uh, you can generally get some really good uh, fall colors. There, we were going to talk about lodges, I guess, and there are two really nice lodges on the uh, Blue Ridge Parkway, one the Pisgah Inn on the south end uh, near Asheville, a little south of Asheville, and the other is uh, Peaks of Otter Lodge on the north end in, in Virginia. They're both really nice lodges surrounded by hardwoods and uh, with, with great mountain views and, and good views. Uh, both of those locations would be perfect for fall colors.
3: And then going up the road, you'd have Shenandoah National Park just north of there, so your colors would be a little bit... Um, you'd have more color earlier, like on the Blue Ridge Parkway, they say mid to late October, is usually when the colors are changing. And then in uh, Shenandoah, you've got a few other trees, but you've got much more elevation. And so you've got different colors at different levels. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll, uh, maybe the top will change before the bottom. So if you're there, maybe you'll see some colors, uh, like they have chestnut and red oak toward the top. You might see those, or you drive along, and and, uh, when you hit a middle elevation, you'll see different colors. (laughs) (laughs) How's that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I've heard that. I've heard that. You can kind of do a a stair step up the mountains and and see different colors depending on where you're staying. Now, just going back to the Blue Ridge Parkway and those two lodges that you mentioned, David— and they're they're smaller, more more intimate settings, aren't they? Than uh, say um, the the Iwani Hotel with its uh, hundreds of rooms.
2: Uh, uh, they are. They're they're really comfortable places to stay, and uh, all the rooms have balconies. And uh, for example, at uh, Pisgah Inn, the balconies face a, a mountain valley and mountains in the distance. So it's it's a terrific place uh, to to view, and we. In the morning, having a cup of coffee, sitting out on the balcony having a cup of coffee is uh, a great experience we found. They have good food. It's turned out that the the pandemic has affected almost all these facilities. And uh, at uh, Pisca Inn, they had always been noted for fine food, and I'm sure they're still serving it. But now I believe they'll only serve dinner uh, to lodge gas because they had to. Space at tables out. Lunches are takeout, and breakfast they're not serving anymore. So things wow. have changed a great deal. I don't know. I don't. You may have run across this, but did did the Bluffs Coffee Shop ever open? I the facility had been renovated, but I'm not sure if they ever opened this year.
1: You know, they opened for about two or three days, and they had. Um, problems first I believe with waterline, and then they just realized that you know it was too small of a gathering place for too many people and so they they shut it down um, and plan to come back in in spring of 21. Um, Good
2: I'm glad they're coming back I I was worried and figured they probably didn't open at all with all the issues that had been going on but I certainly hope that uh, they have a successful year next year.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, now Shenandoah, Kay. You mentioned uh, I've stayed at Big Meadows Lodge, and um, I, I love the setting there. And they've got the, um, uh, I'll say motel style rooms on one hand, but then they also have the the cabins, um, the historic cabins, which are awful nice. And you're surrounded by those hardwood forests. And the Appalachian Trail is five minutes walk from your room, basically.
3: Exactly, and Skyland's uh, kind of the same way, but it's much larger. And uh, different buildings are are scattered out, but they're all sitting on different hillsides. So the views for most of the rooms are pretty good. So you've got those two main choices. Lewis Mountain Cabins is a little, a tiny little complex, but they are open uh, even with the COVID. And uh, they're kind of in a surrounded but
2: Yeah, they are by yeah, trees. By tree. There's no restaurant there, but it's yeah. a short drive north to the other facilities. But my guess would be Lewis Mountain Cabins. Uh, it would be impossible to get a room there now. Right. They're always booked, especially this time of year. They don't have many cabins, in, but it's really an interesting place to stay. Once we were sitting on the, sitting on the porch and a bear came out of the woods and climbed a tree, Mm. Uh, right a little across little the road. Yeah, a small bear.
1: <laughs>
3: kind of looked around to see what's going on came down. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Nice. It's a great place.
1: Yeah. What well, about the middle of the country? Um, I, I know you like uh, Ozark National Scenic Rivers. Um,
0: yes. yes. I'm
1: not sure those lodges has reopened yet. They were going under, under uh, a rather large renovation, wasn't it?
3: Uh, actually, that was, uh, yes, Ozark, they are not open yet. Uh, but Buffalo River, Buffalo National River, is open. They have cabins at Buffalo Point Concessions.
2: That's in oh, really? northern Arkansas. Right,
3: right. Not far from uh, the other setting.
2: And and from the dining room, uh, they've got a spectacular view of the Buffalo River and uh, and trees. I mean, that would be I can't imagine a much better place if you wanted to see fall foliage than uh, that area in northern Arkansas. It's really it's really beautiful. It's a great river to canoe, and uh, it's it's. we didn't find we've never found it crowded, people are nice, and it's a, it's a really pretty area of the country.
1: I'm ashamed to admit I, I wasn't aware of those cabins there.
2: Uh-huh. There are not a lot of them. Uh, they and have...
1: they
3: sit high up, so you're not right on the river. And what do they have, yeah.
2: like five rustic cabins? They have
3: five rustic cabins that were built by the CCC, and those are heated by fireplaces. But then they also have um, modern cabins, so they all, they have a total of only 17, and the modern cabins have, they all have kitchens, but the modern cabins have regular heat, so and, that you can stay a little warmer. And
2: then they have a small dining room with uh, large windows that overlook the Buffalo River, which at that point is far down below, and we haven't been there for a couple of years, but the prices were very modest there. I mean, it, was, it would, would be an inexpensive place to take a vacation.
1: Nice. And, of course, um, Buffalo River is, is one of the eastern or somewhat eastern parks that actually have elk and uh, elk bugling. Right, right.
2: It's only eastern to people that live in Utah. Well, that's true.
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe Colorado. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs>
3: another, uh, another neat spot is in Ohio at Cuyahoga Valley National Park.
1: I know, that's one of your favorite places.
3: It is, and there's a, an inn, inn at Brandywine Falls. sits right um, near a waterfall, naturally, the falls, but the trees are just all around it, and then I'm sure driving through the park would just be uh, quite a treasure because of all the deciduous trees that are through there. They don't have mm-hmm.
2: many rooms. What, six?
3: Uh I think that's right.
2: To have two carriage rooms in a separate building and four four in the house, and a a extremely nice couple that operated and have a a a super breakfast. It's really a fun place to stay and a very quiet and restful place to stay.
1: That sounds good. Where where should we go to to the Rock
2: and Roll Hall of Fame? Just (laughs) north in uh, in Cleveland.
1: Oh, rock dear. on, David, rock on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm past that,
1: I'm afraid.
2: Oh, dear.
1: <laughs> where should we move to next?
2: Let's uh, see. You know, that an, another place where you're probably not going to see much in the way of fall colors, but fall's an excellent time to go, would be uh, Farview Lodge in
1: uh, Mesa Verde. Colorado
2: at Mesa Verde. That, they have great views, uh, great, terrific views. And uh, it's, it's an interesting historical place. Uh, they 've redone some rooms they 're pretty nice and um, but again fall fall would be a great time to be there and big Bend would be another park would be a good it 's a great fall park, but I think it 's close now the
1: yeah, I'm not sure about the lodge. I know I know the park is slowly reopened. I I'm not exactly sure about the lodge. Um, you know, Colorado, um Rocky Mountain National Park doesn't have any lodging inside the park boundaries, but just on the um I'll say the southern boundary um by Estes Park is the uh, YM, YMCA of the Rockies. And um I stayed I worked there. there. You work there?
2: They were an employee I this summer there working.
1: When he was in college.
2: I could have served food to you if you've <laughs> been a little older.
1: I'm old enough, David. <laughs> So, um, but it's a beautiful setting, and I was there for a, a, a ranger conference actually, and um, just just at an, a beautiful setting, the beautiful cabins. Um, you can either get cabins, or there there is motel type units, and um, you can buy into the cafeteria plan, and the, the food is pretty darn good. And you can walk um, from the YMCA grounds right into the national park.
2: It would, yeah, that would. That's one has to be one of the best summers of my life, the first summer I worked there. I, I hear
3: about it all the time. I know she does. <laughs> I, I just finished
2: my sophomore year at Purdue University and drove out there with a friend, and we worked there for the summer, and uh, we had the best time. And I always wondered what it would be like to stay there all winter and work, but, I, of course, I never found out.
1: You know, they've got a, um, a winter operation there with um, uh, cross-country ski trails and... Um snowshoeing and whatnot and um i'm tempted just to to drive over there for that because we love cross-country skiing and to to be in that setting would just be magical i think
2: i think so too you know another hotel at estes park of course is the stanley that's right which, which uh is Stephen one of King. The old yeah yeah it was It's quite a place we <laughs> used to go we used to go there i had a friend that summer that worked at the stanley so we'd go there and and kind of look around it's a neat old hotel
1: They they claim that the bar there has the largest collection of bourbons and whiskeys in the state of Colorado.
2: Well, of course you would know that, but (laughs) that that was a fact that I never caught.
1: (laughs) Well, you have to try it. Uh, (laughs) Staying in the Rocky Mountain region, I know one place you guys probably love as well is um, the cabins at Zion Lodge.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah, the the uh, the Western Cabins at, at Zion. Actually, the, the motel units or the motor lodge units there bad are also very nice. Right. And I think uh, there, it would be a hard choice between those two. I, we like I think... the cabins, and they've been redone, and they're, they're really nice. They're gorgeous. But the motor lodge units are nice also.
1: Yeah, but you get that, that wood fireplace there. I don't know if it's wood or a gas That's fireplace. True.
2: That's true. It's gas, I think. Uh-huh. So. Yeah. 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 Uh, but... They are nice, and I like that, uh, like the park the the downside, I don't know if that's changed in the last couple of years. we were there a couple of years ago. It was very crowded, and I know they've got the shuttle system, mm-hmm. and that helps things on the canyon road. Mm-hmm. but
3: uh, but we were also there in the summer.
2: We were there in the yeah. summer, yeah. so, so fall October, would be great. Fall, yeah. fall would be the time to go to Zion, I think it's It's pretty
1: crowded. You know, um, some some years ago, uh, my wife and I took her parents, and we did Zion, and we stayed um, in the cabins there, and then we went over to Bryce. And I don't know if you've ever stayed in those cabins there on the rim. We
3: Wait. have, we
1: have. Oh, gorgeous.
2: Well, and those have been re those have been renovated uh, since we stayed it. We stayed in one. I can't remember what year. It's been a while, but um, they, I think those have been renovated, and. I those western cabins, I think we like better than the ones at Zion. Uh, I don't know why, but I think
3: because they sit away from the parking lot.
2: They do. They do sit yeah, away from the parking lot
3: toward the, the rim.
2: Yeah, but they're I really believe, nice. I believe they're they're
1: they're freestanding units, whereas um, the ones at Zion aren't they like quads?
3: Well, no, no. they're They are. Uh,
2: they're they're either they're quads, quads or, or doubles. Doubles, yeah, uh-huh. and they have you can tell. By the sheathing on the logs, can't you? Isn't <laughs> right, that the way we figured right. it out. Right,
3: that fellow told us. Yeah. Um, I can't remember which is which, but some of the logs have the bark off, and uh-huh. other logs have the bark on. Yeah. And one's a four a uh, fourplex, and the others a twoplex.
2: Yeah, I think <laughs> that's. But they're they're really nice, really nice yes. cabins. We really right. like that, and. and one year we were there in a full moon and walked over, and oh. saw the canyon uh, under a full moon. It was—I mean, you're used to that, but we were in the <laughs> flatlands in South Georgia, man. That's—that was like a magical moment for us. Uh, well,
1: you got to get out more often.
2: <laughs> you know, I know we do. We've—we've we've been stunned by the humidity yeah, down there.
3: We had the t- to drive out of town in order to see the comet that came, uh, you know, it, and, it was, and we a- saw a picture of it shooting over Bryce Canyon. Yeah. Oh, wow, we wish we were there. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. The time we stayed at Bryce, and it, it was late October, and it had snowed the night before, so the, the cabins had frosting on them, and
2: it was uh, truly a great experience. It snowed when we were there.
1: <laughs>
3: and we were there in the summer. We were yes. there in the summer, and it, it snowed. snowed. I don't
2: know what month it was. It wasn't a heavy snow, but It was every... probably
3: May, because wow. we were well, at the.
2: We had go- gone to the North Rim. Uh-huh. It was probably May, and yeah. it had snow covered everything.
3: It was yeah. like you said; it's kind of magical.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: where to next?
3: Okay, how about
2: Death Valley? Truly, perfect place I mean, for the fall. Not not it, much it, foliage there. But, I don't think <laughs> the palm trees at the Oasis going to change much color, but
3: but when you do a birding section, that's where they'll hopefully highlight. Death Valley, because the birding uh, for the migration is just really terrific,
1: they say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not as crazy.
3: She's thinking of Big Ben. I'm thinking of Big Ben.
2: Hey, we get (laughs) the (laughs) desert. It's tough. We need to get a map out.
1: Oh, that's When she started talking about
2: birding, I couldn't figure out what what she was talking about. Well, there's
1: roadrunners. there's yes. yes.
2: <laughs> now that's another magical thing for us because we don't have those down here. No,
3: we saw uh, a bird the other day and we both commented. He ran across the road just like a roadrunner.
1: Yeah. Oh, dear. Interesting. We're getting um, hard up here.
2: <laughs> the, the North Rim also, um, of course, they, Canyon they, Lodge. Closed they closed pretty early, early. But yeah. uh, they're only renting Western cabins this summer. Right. And And the the dining room is closed, um, it's, so it's a kind of a carry-out lunch and dinner. So it's a mu- much different environment than it was in the past. But And first, when we were talking to the manager, we were thinking, geez, I don't know if I'd want to go there, but if there were only the Western cabins, you'd almost have the place to yourself, and it would yes. really, would be, really yeah, would be a great I... experience, I think.
1: You know it's it's interesting this year the travel patterns with the national parks because you do have a number of parks where you don't have as many lodging options as in the past because of the covid situation and yet Yellowstone just recorded its second busiest August of all time. You know, I
3: saw that and I thought I wonder if they made a mistake. <laughs>
1: yeah. But
3: they didn't. Huh? Oh
1: my. No, no. So um maybe the gateway towns are doing um boom business.
2: I I bet they are because in Yellowstone, the Lake Hotel isn't open, is it? I don't think.
1: I don't know. I'm not sure. I
2: don't think so. And I think at Mammoth, uh, only the cabins were open for a while. Maybe they opened more things up. I'm not sure. But at least initially, they didn't have a lot of lodging open. Yeah. But,
1: but yeah,
2: it's been really busy.
1: You know, I'm wondering how busy it is because Delaware North, um, just the other week, Uh, announced a a sale, if you will. Um, I think it was 25% off at select destinations. Um, I know um, Kaleilock Lodge comes to mind um, in Olympic. Um, I think Watsachi and Sequoia... National Park um, and some other places. I know on a on the traveler, there's a story about it. But, you know, that kind of, you know, begs the question of how, how heavy is visitation and, and is it just to select parks? But uh, 25% sale on room pr- prices is pretty good.
2: It, it is. It is pretty good. good. But, but I'm guessing that people are hesitant to travel out west now uh, just for the smoke and, and yeah. especially the, the fires uh i don't know what's open we should have checked in crater lake i don't know what's open there but
1: uh well they're on a um they're on a um level one be ready to evacuate notice so i'm, I'm not sure <laughs> i'm not sure we want to recommend going to crater lake this fall no no, no oh, that, i
2: wondered mm-hmm. uh i wondered how bad the smoke was up there
1: yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure i did see a picture from yosemite um And it was a side-by-side picture going from uh, hazardous air quality to just unhealthy air quality. So, um, yeah. Of course, we just heard that uh, Yosemite National Park has closed because of the air quality situation, so it might be a while before the lodgings uh, reopen there, what with the uh, the fire situation in California. What about Olympic National Park? I know um, up at Lake Crescent, they've got those gorgeous Roosevelt cabins that I've been telling my wife for about 20 years now that we're going to go stay in, and we've never quite made it yet.
3: That would be a good spot. They um, They... The Lodge itself closes mid-October, but they do leave the Roosevelt cabins. uh, I say mid-October, October October 25th. They leave the Roosevelt cabins open on the weekend, Mm -hmm. and you have to guarantee a two-night stay, but they're open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. But there's no food service then. You've got to have your own or, you know, round it up, go out for a drive and pick up dinner or something.
2: Mm -hmm. By the way, that... uh Lake-, lake Crescent Lodge has always been one of our favorite places to stay. It's a really laid-back place. Uh, it's, it's fun in the evening to go out and sit in, the, uh, sit in chairs outside the old lodge uh, in front of the lake and uh, watch people fish and canoe, and uh, it's really a nice place. Now, another place we haven't been lake- is, well, is what about across, lake- across the lake at oh, Log, Log Cabin, Cabin Resort.
3: I was thinking about uh, Lake Quinault Lodge, also
2: Lake Quinault. Yeah. that's yeah. Th- that's just outside the park, but on to the, the south. Yeah, across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a- river. Yeah.
1: You know, I've never I've never stayed at the log cabin resort. I know um, uh, back in the last dec- the last century, <clears throat> when I was working on uh, National Parks for Dummies, I did drive by and and took a look at the outside location. And I know um, since that time that uh, it has been. Um, rehabilitated and uh I know they've got a new concessionaire there I, I can't I want to say it's aramark but I'm not positive about that They took it on yeah, yeah
2: it was in bad shape we we the, those two are so close together that usually when we'd go through there only one time did we stay at Long Cabin Resort and it turned out that the owner was there and we got to talk to her uh, which was kind of interesting but uh the place had really deteriorated and
0: mm-hmm.
2: a lot of the siding was starting to rot but then when airmark took it over i think both the park service and airmark have spent a lot of money on mm-hmm. log cabin resort and and i think that's generally considered um maybe a better location. I don't know if it'd be a better place to stay, but a little
3: sunnier. I li- think a little sunnier think, yeah. on that
2: north side uh-huh. of the on the north side of the lake. Huh.
3: Now another huh. spot up there for color is at so Cott Springs Resort. That's
2: uh-huh. right, right, the middle part, of the woods.
3: Right, and uh, they kept the baths open, but uh, no, nobody. You have to be staying there in order to go in, and you also have to have a reservation. So they're very limiting the people in the hot pools and
2: stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are in spring. relatively new cabins.
3: Uh, right, all the, nice. All the,
2: all the lodgings mm-hmm. and relatively new cabins. We've eaten there a couple of times. It's just it's pretty much a standard restaurant with a mm-hmm. standard restaurant menu. So it's nothing fancy. But I, you know, you go to a place like that and and uh, we. I mean, we really didn't care. We're not used to, <laughs> to much that's fancy anywhere.
1: You're used to staying in your tent.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, thank being goodness until we're out of that. Kate tucked <laughs> that away in the attic. Right.
1: Come on. Right, come on sleep, sleeping on the hard ground is good for the back. Hey, let's... I tell her let, those things. Yeah. Let's wrap this up by jumping across the ocean to Hawaii and the volcano house.
2: Well, we've been to Volcano House, but we've never stayed there, and it was a long time ago oh, when we were right. there. Basically, they've taken it apart and put it back together since we've been there. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't imagine a much better place to, to go and stay. Uh, it's a long drive over there, of course. <laughs> but, or swim. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But,
3: uh, You're right on the edge of the volcano, yeah,
2: which would be yeah. super
1: neat there's no there's no wildfires Kilauea has stopped uh, erupting um you have a somewhat new landscape to to look at and I, I imagine it's got to be fascinating
2: right I, it, right it, i think so the whole island is that whole big island is uh, a fun place to, we we spent a summer at the university of Hawaii and Oahu and then went over there for a weekend and and drove around the big island uh which i thought was actually a, a better place to stay than uh Yeah, Yeah. which was very busy. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, David and Kay Scott, the authors of The Complete Guide to National Park Lodges, it's been fun kicking around different uh, lodging destinations for the fall. Um, Obviously, what we need is is more time and more money so we can just go lodge to lodge across the park system over about six or
2: eight weeks. What do you think? If I was younger, that sounds like a good idea.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and especially in the fall for the leaves, People need to plan ahead with their reservations. Yeah, You're be- right about that. Yeah, you know?
2: because like at Piske and they're full, all the rooms are filled for all of October now. So uh, wow. people need, if they want to travel to places where foliage color is very important and it's normally in the fall and October, they need to plan really early and get a room uh, as soon as they can.
1: It used to be, uh, I think, six months ahead. Can you can you plan farther out? Do you know? Uh, some, some lodges mm-hmm. will allow it. A, to, year, a year. year and a day. Yeah, a year out. and a day. Mm-hmm. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, maybe next time we can talk about favorite campgrounds for the fall. What do you think? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I would, I'd li- I would I'd like to go... Uh, you to have camp David camp. on that one. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to do it solo, probably. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, guys.
2: Good nice talking with you again, Kurt. Good luck and uh, stay safe.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular National Parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.
1: Looking to get out of doors on a beautiful fall day? How about observing autumn bird migration in Acadia National Park? That's where you can see a variety of species on their annual migration along the Atlantic flyway. And as travelers Lynn Riddick discovers, you can personally contribute to scientific research inside a national park at the same time.
4: This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm speaking with Seth Benz. He is Bird Ecology Director at the Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park. Hi Seth, welcome to The Traveler. Hi Lynn, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. I want to ask you about the autumn migration of birds through Acadia, but first, can you tell us a little bit about the Institute, what your mission is, and what makes it unique in the national park system?
5: Sure. Um, the Scutic Institute is a nonprofit partner of Acadia National Park, and we are a research learning center, one of about, uh, I believe it's eighteen or nineteen in the in the National Park system across the country. We operate as a a conference center, and then we are certainly um, instrumental in helping with research in the park as well as um, doing independent research from our various ecologists that we have. So we we do research in addition to the park. We do research outside of the park as well. Our sort of mission statement, if you will, is we pursue collaborative solutions to critical environmental challenges through discovery and learning. And we are doing all of that in, in a time of rapid environmental change. We have four different sort of programs. The, the, we have a, a forest program, a marine program, education, and, and, of course, the bird ecology program. With respect to the forest program, we're, we're instrumental in looking at future forests um, across the park system, of course, operating mostly here in the Northeast. But um, we do have a connection with many parks across the country. And that's some of the leading research that's being done. And then marine life work, we're we're looking at um, impacts of, of climate change on things like pH and the warming of the ocean, what's happening to the biodiversity in the oceans and, and um, near shore waters. In education, our principal program is a middle school program that's a residential. So kids come from well, all over the, the Northeast for sure. It was first designed for a couple of the counties that surround Scudic Institute. Um, the kids come for two nights, three days, and are introduced to sort of all things environmental. And um, it's a pretty exciting program.
4: Let's talk about bird watching there. Um, why is Acadia National Park a good place for bird watching in general
5: well that's a very good question the The uh, park itself is located in the what most people refer to as the Atlantic flyway there's a loose definition about what the Atlantic flyway is um, but we we are situated on, right on the coast, and uh, we're in the Gulf of Maine, which is in the northwest corner of the atlantic ocean and um our particular peninsula juts out into the ocean or into the gulf just enough that it it becomes like a pivotal point for any birds coming down the coast or flying over the uh over the the land they'll they'll come out to the edge of the the land the end of the peninsula where there's our our um Habitat is mostly spruce fir forest, so there's great uh, shelter there for the birds. And uh, Acadia is unique in that it has two separate districts, and they lie four miles across this uh, this body of water called Frenchman's Bay. And um, so we are on the eastern side. The birds come down the coast, get out to our peninsula, follow the peninsula out into the water, so to speak. And then hop across this four mile stretch over to Mount Desert Island, which is where the the central part of, of um, Acadia National Park lies and so it's the it's a unique topography standing on cuotic Point, looking towards Mount Desert Islands. you see these very high bald mountains it's really the one of the highest points along the eastern seaboard from from um, Maine all the way to Rio de Janeiro in in, uh, Brazil. So um, it's a pretty exciting place, a great landscape, many, many different habitats. I mentioned the spruce fir forests on our side. Over on the other side, um, there's, because of a fire back in the 40s, there's a lot of mixed forest happening. And of course, we are studying what's happening with our forests in terms of the birds, the habitats are great. The coastline is is a you know a great transition from land to sea. So we have a, we have these high mountains as well. So hawks go over. We watch seabirds migrating through, and of course songbirds um, um, coming through, especially this time of the year. Fall fall of the year at in Acadia National Park is is just uh, m- much more populated with birds than than is the springtime.
4: Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, bird watching in the fall. We are at the end of September right now, and there are several months that you will see a large uh, amount of birds flying through there as they migrate south. Talk a little bit more about that the autumn time of year and the bird watching and the hawks.
5: Roughly from August through till um, November, birds, are hawks, are moving down, uh, down the coast, coming out of the maritime provinces of Canada, or, or even uh, through the inland parts of Canada, the Hudson Bay area, maybe even over to the Great Lakes, birds are, are coming across the landscape. And um, birds of the year, young birds of the year, one of the reasons why there are more birds in the fall is that, of course, the breeding season has ended shorebirds, uh, passerines or songbirds, hawks, all of those birds have had their young. And now it's time to vacate the breeding area and the boreal forest to our north and head south to the wintering areas. And so the just the volume of birds due to the breeding season is always greater in the fall than it is in the spring when the adults are going to their breeding areas. So we set up a a hawk watch on top of Cadillac Mountain, the birds see the mountains from a great distance, and it's it's kind of a beacon, a landscape beacon, a, a flight line, if you will. And the birds will follow the coast. They see that that mountain or series of mountains that are on Mount Desert Island, and they they um, take advantage of the the updrafts or the thermals that are generated coming across the landscape. The prevailing winds right now are from the west or northwest, and and those are the best kind of winds that the, the hawks are able to quarter into, gaining lift and oftentimes saving a lot of energy. They don't have to f- flap the whole way south. They can, they can ride these wind currents and, and uh, make their way southbound that way. So, and of course, the hawks that come through are following these, these um, songbirds that are migrating because the hawks, of course, feed on the songbirds. So you have this dynamic going on. Of course, the songbirds are migrating mostly at night, but during the day they come down and hit the treetops and look for insects and things like that and fruits. And right on their tail are are some of the sharp-shinned hawks and Cooper's hawks, peregrine falcons, merlins, American kestrels that are following these birds southbound. And um, we get to see all of that happening right here in our little neck of the woods.
4: That's got to be exciting. I was wondering about the different types of hawks that you typically see, and you rely on public participation in the scientific research that you're doing. Tell us how that works and what your goal is by getting volunteers from the public to help count birds that fly by.
5: Yes, thank you for reminding me. In my opening remarks about the institute, I neglected to mention the work that we do with citizen science, and some would say that's the nucleus of our, of our work. And certainly in the bird ecology program, we rely on visitors to contribute to things like eBird. And then we have, we have trained volunteers that we bring in f- to help us monitoring the hawks that are happening right now. We also, right at this same time, we have a sea watch. And uh, many, many thousands of seabirds are going by. And um, we, have, we have trained volunteers and folks that come out as spectators that help us spot the birds. And then, of course, the, the more trained and skilled folks can identify things. And we also do the same with, with songbirds. So at this time of year, in the fall, we have a songbird monitoring program, uh, a sea watch or a, a seabird, mostly sea ducks. Things like gannets, in fact, this morning, we saw 221 gannets go by Scudic Point, which is, that's a pretty good early number for this time in the fall. And and we have the the Hawk Watch on Cadillac. So uh, those three monitoring programs are going on and uh, they wouldn't be happening if it weren't for the citizen scientists that come join us and they can receive training if they want to, they can remain a spectator, but help spot birds. Um, so it really we, we try to provide a menu of, of, of depth of, of engagement to, to anyone so that it's, it's not so intimidating. <whistles>
4: Now, it looks like you had over 2,500 visitors who stopped by to learn or to participate in the Hawk Watch last year. What's your projection this year? Do you need more volunteers?
5: We uh, advantageously, I suppose, placed the Hawk Watch site near a very, very popular trail on Cadillac Mountain. Uh, at, the, uh, the, at the outset of the, the Hawk Watch, which is now in its 26th year. So back in the 90s, when it first began, and I happened to be a ranger at that time in Acadia National Park, and in fact, wrote the proposal for the Hawk Watch. And, um, and, and even though I wasn't there when, when it was implemented, what, what those folks did that did uh, implement the Hawk Watch were they picked a place where both the education, uh, aspect as well as the phenomenon of migration would sort of collaborate, come together very nicely. And so they picked a spot where there would be sort of maximum exposure to the, to the migration. And, um, one of the reasons why our numbers are so high, are casual visitors, our hikers are coming, coming by. And then they see this group of people all bundled up and some sitting in in their lawn chairs that they bring and and uh you know some just sitting on the rocks it's like on a little rock outcropping and it's always windy and sometimes even though it's the temperature says it's 45 or 50 degrees the wind can make it feel 10 to 15 degrees colder so we're all bundled up we have wool caps on and mittens and we're sitting there and it's, you know, this time in September and, and pe- people are just like, what is up with those people? They, <laughs> and we of course we have, we have binoculars and we have spotting scopes and we're waiting for these birds to come toward us so that we can uh, uh, identify them. And um, typical of how it works now is Scudic Institute is in charge of the data collection. So, so the volunteers that I have are, up there spotting and counting the birds. And then the park, Acadia National Park, has rangers, interpretive and education rangers there, who are talking to the the general public as they come by. So we do have visitors that that come every year during the Hawk Watch time and actually join us and help in the spotting. But a lot of those 2,500 are, the majority of the 2,500 are casual visitors who see what's going on, come by for a, you know, a 20 minute orientation and then watch for a few more minutes or maybe even they you know, like the other day when we had over 500, we had close to 600 birds come by people plopped down and sat there with us and just were awed by the phenomenon that they were seeing as bald eagles were going by and Osprey and Northern Harriers, sharp shinned hawks, and so we saw 11 different species in a, in a relatively short period of time, and it included things like the endangered, well, the once endangered peregrine falcon, merlins, which are a favorite. All the falcons are favorites. And then broad-winged hawks were moving that day. I, our, our number from the other day was 290. Um, so these birds, broad-winged hawks, travel in flocks and, and take advantage of rising pockets of air Uh, get up very high and when the rising pocket of air or or thermal peaks at its apex the birds glide out of that thermal looking looking southward or westward for the next thermal and they literally glide out and you can count them one by one as they go even if they're a hundred across you can count them and then they pick up another thermal somewhere beyond where we are and um, it's 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 really neat to see that.
4: Tell me a little bit more about the Sea Watch and the Songbird Watch and what the specific timetable is for each one of those. I
5: was inspired by um, trips to the Avalon Peninsula, uh, just north of Cape May, New Jersey, north of Atlantic City, where folks used to watch, or still do, and watch from a jetty uh, along the coast. Again, a, a jetty sticks out a bit and these this volume of sea ducks and gannets, all manner of birds moving, moving down, grebes um, are moving, and loons too, are moving southward uh, on their way to South Carolina, Georgia, Florida Bay, Gulf of Mexico. Birds are moving down through, and, and, and um, down there they see upwards of 800,000 birds in a season when I'm talking about see, their season at, at Avalon is from mid-September to November, just about Thanksgiving. Here in Acadia National Park, we start in early September and go to uh, just before Thanksgiving. A couple of years ago, we saw 105,000 seabirds. Some, some people refer to them as water birds. It, it takes into account all birds associated with water that are that are moving down the Atlantic Flyway. So it's it's a uh, for instance we we had um, fifty seven different species last year and and we saw seventy six thousand birds last year. But the big numbers are things like double crested cormorants, northern gannets, common eiders, which is a which is a northern sea duck. We see three species of scoters, black, white-winged, and surf scoter. We had a day in, in uh, 2018, uh, October 17th to be, to be exact, we saw 25,000 scoters made up of all three species moving moving past um, Scudic Point. So the volume of seabirds moving past and through Acadia National Park is much, much greater than are the numbers of hawks that are moving through. Now, the seabirds are coming from as far west as the Great Lakes, crossing the land and and coming to the Atlantic coast. Again, other birds are pouring out of the maritime provinces of Canada or up the tundra above um, Hudson Bay and up in in that neck of the woods, so sort of central uh, to eastern Canada. Uh, birds are coming from those directions and funneling down the Atlantic Flyway. We see um, common loons, red-throated loons, red-necked grebes, horned grebes, long-tailed ducks. Uh, you know, again, it's it's this. The excitement is certainly the volume of birds, but then the mixture of of flocks that are going by and and. Um, you know, it really tests one's skill and identification to pick out, pick out the birds as, as they're going by. The songbirds, again, they're moving at night, but as daybreak comes, they, they come out of their flight to head into the treetops to take shelter and to, to uh, feed and forage. <laughs> before they are ready to strike off, you know, the, the next night that that provides this, the right kind of conditions for them to fly. So on, I would say, maybe four or five days in a season, and again, that's uh, songbirds start migrating as early as late August and, and move through until uh, mid-October, maybe late October, you can find some stragglers here. And they're taking advantage of of, um, caterpillars, other insects, and and the fruits that the, the forest may provide.
4: Now, I read that there are some 215 bird species present at some time during the year in Acadia and I saw that an additional 116 species are possibly present, but unconfirmed. Is there an unconfirmed and elusive bird you're really hoping to see this fall?
5: Well, we call those, uh, some of those birds would be vagrants that uh, you know occur every so often in the state, perhaps. In terms of the hawks, I would love to see a gyrfalcon. falcon. You know, it's a bird of the, it's a bird of the north, the tundra. They do migrate on occasion. Uh, they, they nomadically move southbound. Um, there's not a whole lot of them because they're an apex predator. And so, you know, here in the state of Maine, they've certainly been seen in the state. I've seen one myself here in, in Maine. I've seen a few in Pennsylvania where I grew up, always in the wintertime. Um, So late fall, winter is the time to look for those. So that, that's a bird that I, uh, that I would, I would love to see. They're just, they're the biggest falcon. They, you know, they take things like uh, they prey on things like rough grouse, you know, bigger birds, pheasants, that, that size of bird. So, so they're a pretty, uh, a pretty neat predator. There's, there's just so many birds. I, I happen to sit on the, on the committee for the state in terms of, all the bird reports of any kind of rare or vagrant bird uh, comes to our committee, and we have to look through the the uh, the observation and the the uh, try to verify the observation. Always, it's always good if you see a rare bird to get a photograph uh, if you can.
4: You have done some interesting research on a variety of birds, ranging from hawks, eagles, and owls to terns and songbirds. What's your favorite kind of bird, or do you have favorites in each category?
5: One of my very, very favorite birds, both to see and to hear, is a diminutive little bird called the winter wren. And it is, uh, true to its name, its genus is Troglodyte, and they are you know, troglodyte is something like cave dweller or dark dweller. They they like to skulk around in our, our in our spruce fir forest. They particularly like when there's an upended uh, tree in the forest or something like that, and they'll go down into the in, and they'll find a little crevice in the root systems, and that that's where they'll put their nest. They're they're down in the what we call the little little putian world where they're with the lichens and the mushrooms and things like that and they're these little denizens of the forest. They have one of the longest, sweetest, warbling songs that you could possibly hear. And when you know the bird is such a small, a small little organism with such a such a powerful, sweet, long song, it just well for me it, it blows me away, and I love to hear it every spring when they come back from the winter. Even though they're called winter wren, they do migrate out of our area and, and return in the springtime. They're they're not a long-distant migrant. They They only go into the southeastern United States, rarely getting into Central America.
4: Well, to summarize, for folks wanting to come to Acadia this fall... The best place to see the hawks would be Cadillac Mountain. And what about seabirds and songbirds? What are the best places to observe them?
5: Seabirds, the best place to come to is Scudic Point. Um, And we tend to see them the best time of the day to see uh, those for the early riser. It's from Sunrise to about three, three and a half, four hours after sunrise. Pretty much any day, regardless of the wind conditions, you can see uh, seabirds migrating from Scudic Point. And then the songbirds um, here in Acadia National Park, there are places, uh, again on the Scudic Peninsula, there's a place called Fraser Point. Um, that's, that's a very, very good place to look for songbirds. On Mount Desert Island in the, in the central part of, of uh, Acadia National Park, there are places like um, Seal Harbor, Otter Creek, Seawall. There, there are many different places uh, where you can encounter songbird movements.
4: Seth, thank you so much for your time today. Please keep us posted on the results of your various watches this year.
5: I certainly will. And and for any of your listeners that would like to contact me, they they can do so. And uh, I'm happy to answer questions. Benz at org will get you connected with me. And and, uh, I thrive on the questions that come in and uh, be happy to connect with anyone.
1: That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Turn to the Traveler website a bit later this week and contributor Kim O'Connell will take you onto Chesapeake Bay to understand how the National Park Service is working to improve the Bay's health. Along the way, she tells you about efforts to establish a Chesapeake Bay National Recreation Area unit of the National Park System. For the Traveler,
0: this is Kurt Repencheck. and provides the background music for National Parks Traveler's podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can find out more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.